Well, I can hardly begin, uh, believe that we're beginning early, uh, but here we are. I want to welcome Althea Osborne back. She's a longtime supporter of British Studies and very glad to see her here. Uh, I also want to mention that we have Avi Schleim uh, here just for the fun of it, uh, but he will also, I'm sure, have views on Shakespeare. Uh, Gwen Daniel uh, is actually a family therapist, clinical supervisor in the National Health Service. Uh, she's the co-founder of the Oxford uh, Family Institute, and perhaps she will be able to explain how someone in family therapy became so much so interested uh, in Shakespeare. Uh, she is the co-author of Gender and Family Therapy, published in 1994, and her most recent book is Family Dreams, Intimacy, Dramas, Dramas <laughs> Intimacy, Power, and Systems in Shakespeare's Tragedies. I'll just uh, w add one word about uh, a certain encounter that Gwen had some years ago. It was at St. Anthony's College at the time that Ralph Derendorf was the warden of the college. This is Lord Derendorf, who at one time was uh, the uh, warden uh, director of the London School of Economics during a period of great student protest and troubles. Uh, so when he was introduced to Gwyn, he looked at Gwyn and pointed his fingers and said, you were one of the troublemakers. <laughs> So from Troublemakers to Shakespeare. So, oh, I'm sorry, James, James. Uh, I, I will just uh, have a, 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 just a, another word of welcome to, to Gwyn Daniel and uh, uh, say uh, how much I'm looking forward to the, the talk. These are two plays, two of uh, Shakespeare's uh, latest tragedies, and two plays that I think are, are not often discussed in relation to each other, um, but um, I'm uh, eager to, to hear uh, what you have to say, because uh, they certainly are plays that deal with um, uh, family situations, um, uh, as you've explored in your, in your previous book, but also very much um, uh, powerful plays about, about politics and, and leadership, and so uh, that the, the confluence of those different ideas, uh, I think, makes them uh, excellent plays to be paired in such a discussion. And I really look forward to hearing what you have to say. Welcome. Thank you, James, and thank you, Roger. And um, it's a huge pleasure for me to be here on my very first visit to Texas. And um, I'm really grateful to Roger and to British Studies for inviting me. So, as uh, James said, my lecture is going to be about uh, Macbeth and Coriolanus, um, and it will be focused more on political relationships than family relationships as such, but I'm very happy to answer questions about any of those particular dimensions of, of the play. So, just to start, it's worth noting that at times of political crisis, and turmoil in the United Kingdom, of which we have had just a bit recently. Commentators, we can be quite sure, both from within and from without, will turn to Shakespeare. Now here are just a few examples. <coughs> in an editorial 
entitled British Politics, Shakespeare's Authentic Drama, the Spanish newspaper El Mundo commented, amid the deep turmoil that has engulfed the UK since the triumph of Brexit, its leaders look more than ever like characters out of a Shakespeare play. Betrayals, passionate hatred, envy, personal ambitions, all the ingredients so deftly handled by the great playwright are here. Also in 2016, the German literary critic Bernhard Schulz wrote a piece entitled Et to Michael Gove, <laughs> <laughs> lamenting the fact that Shakespeare's dramatization of Julius Caesar has now returned as farce. <laughs> the Japan Times, no less, in, also in 2016, wrote, it's a bit like a Shakespeare play, specifically the final act of Hamlet where almost all the play's major characters die violently, and now we're down to one. Her name is Theresa May, <laughs> who, of course, also met a violent political death. And as recently as September 2019, Andrew Rawnsley wrote a piece in The Observer entitled, Like Macbeth, Johnson is too stepped in blood to turn back. Now, this tendency to leap for the bard when political life seems to be turning into tragedy, and when, of course, as in much tragedy, it tips over into melodrama and farce, it reminds us yet again of how deeply embedded in our cultural thinking is Shakespeare's drama. And it also reminds us of what the components of tragedy are, a sense of helplessly witnessing or participating in a seemingly inexorable march towards catastrophe. <coughs> Our own parliament has certainly at times <coughs> excuse me, resembled a theatre. <coughs> Sorry, Theresa May gave a, a famous uh, party conference speech when she spent the entire speech coughing, so I hope I won't be like that. <laughs> um, our parliament has at times resembled a theatre in which we are appalled, disgusted, frightened, and yet at the same time fascinated, and let's face it, mildly entertained. So the problem is, when these comparisons are made, it's so often with an individual Shakespearean tragic hero. And this, I think, reinforces a tendency, probably inevitable in our individualistic culture, of focusing on a single demonic figure rather than looking at the workings of power that allow this miscreant to emerge. So the figures of Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, or Donald Trump, or Steve Bannon, individualized processes that do require a different level of understanding. And this tendency to focus on the individual is a temptation in drama criticism as much as in politics. And the alternative, of course, is digging deeply into the power structures and the interactions that maintain these political leaders in their positions. Now, in my book, Family Dramas, maybe my next one will be called Family Dreams, Roger. <laughs> uh, intimacy, power and systems in Shakespeare's tragedies. I focus on the relationships. Now, family relationships, obviously, but also those between soldiers, between 
masters, mistresses and their servants, between political allies, between soldiers, and I explore the ideological contexts that infuse and give texture to these relationships, both personal and political. So I think this focus on relationships, which of course as a family therapist I have to do because relationships are what face me in my consulting room, it means that we become more interested in the interactions, in the processes, in the patterns, as much as in the internal states. So in the two plays I look at today, I'm focusing on politics as much as family relations. <coughs> I aim to look beyond the eponymous heroes to the context in which these political leaders or would-be leaders were able to thrive and ultimately, of course, since these are tragedies, to fail. Now, there is a saying that all political careers end in failure, but they don't always end quite as brutally as in Elizabethan and Jacobean tragedy. Looking beyond the tragic hero or villain in Shakespeare's tragedies requires <coughs> looking in depth at dialogues that quite often seem peripheral and including what we can call voices from below, the perspectives of minor characters who often provide a commentary at a completely different level to the individual tragic failings of the main protagonists. And these are popularly considered to be ambition in the case of Macbeth and pride in the case of Coriolanus. But however powerfully Shakespeare portrays a despot or a psychopath, he always provides openings for new perspectives. So when we dig into the text, we learn about contexts that enable these despots to thrive. And thus we find, and this is very important um, in my reading of Shakespeare, examples of interdependency and interrelationship. And these provide a texture and a nuance to the most absolutist actions. So just to start with Macbeth, um, a couple of words about the political issues at the time Shakespeare wrote the play, uh, which have been beautifully and eloquently um, outlined in James Shapiro's book, 1606, The Year of Lear. So uh, James VI of Scotland had just acceded to the English throne as James I of England. And the question of union was hotly debated and contested, although the act of union itself was not to be signed until a century later. But questions of succession were still powerfully resonant. And in Macbeth, Shakespeare made one of his very rare references to a living monarch when the witches showed Macbeth the long line of Banquo's heirs, which ended in James himself. Um, additionally, the gunpowder plot of 1605 had massive ramifications uh, for uh, society, including, of course, the persecution of Catholics. And a lot of um, the crime of equivocation, which is stating one thing while you actually believe another, which is probably an early definition of a thought crime, um, was uh, to be found in Macbeth, the word equivocation, 
so when Macbeth says near the end of the play to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth, he's referring to that context. So I'm going to make three reflections about uh, Macbeth that I hope will take us beyond the characteristics of the individual leader and more into patterns and processes in political life. So they're the circular processes that follow a violent seizure of power, the isolation and paranoia that accompanies an inability to maintain a loyal following, and the need at some level for consent in carrying out the most brutal actions. So to begin with the first, violent seizures of power, as we know from our experience uh, throughout the world, they generate their own unremittingly circular processes. And I think Macbeth is a play that um, dramatises that particularly well. It highlights early on the dilemmas involved in maintaining power that has been attained violently and which can thus only be sustained by further acts of violence. Now this is something Macbeth himself knows only too well, even before he's murdered Duncan the king. And Lady Macbeth expresses this dilemma very poignantly, if rather belatedly, where, I, where our desire is got without content, Tis safer to be that which we destroy than by destruction dwell in doubtful joy. And I think that encapsulates the dilemma of how you, how you go on in a context where you can only go on violently. In the English history plays, Shakespeare explored the whole matter of whether or not violent seizure of power from an anointed monarch can, with enough narrative effort, be sanitised over time and transformed within a generation into what we can call natural succession. So the English history plays Richard II, Henry IV, parts one and two, and Henry V deal with, in part, with that theme. But in Macbeth, the themes are of usurpation and illegitimacy, summed up in the imputation that Macbeth wears borrowed clothes. He's wearing royal robes that are not his, that do not fit him. And this intersects with the const constantly with the whole question of producing heirs. So violent actions in the present can be justified if they can be, in terms of the future security and status they might produce for children. But Macbeth, of course, has no children. He has no heirs. <coughs> so if Caesar of power is not linked with founding a dynasty, then there's little to anchor it or to give it purpose and structure, thus justifying legitimate heirs. Although Macbeth himself is clearly defined as a usurper and a tyrant, his willingness to commit acts of brutality which violate all normal human bonds raises questions for the other protagonists. So it isn't only Macbeth who's faced with this question. 
And this is illustrated in a dialogue between Malcolm, who's the legitimate heir of Duncan, and Macduff, who has recently fled to England. And this is a fascinating dialogue that I think doesn't get enough attention. Malcolm is warning Macduff of his own capacity to be an even more terrible despot than Macbeth. And when he does it, he's usually considered to be testing out Macduff's loyalty. So, but, but beneath the fear and the paranoia that result from violence lie other reflections about how tyranny infiltrates all human relationships. So that, as uh, Malcolm says, a good and virtuous nature may recoil in an imperial charge. So the result is that Ma Malcolm mistrusts Macduff's avowal of loyalty, but his next speeches are so melodramatic and excessive, even in the cause of testing his friend. And I think that he's testing his own capacity uh, and testing the limitations of power and its abuses. And he's commenting on the perpetuation and intensification of cycles of violence. <coughs> so this is his speech. I think I'll spare you my poor Shakespearean diction and just let you read it. But he's basically saying, huh, Macbeth has got nothing on me. I'm going to be even worse. And just watch this space. So the idea is that he's testing himself as well as Macduff. And the fantasy he creates of his own potential for tyrannical, unjust and oppressive rule points to a deeper concern. And that's how the overthrow of a tyrant is just as likely to lead to an escalation of violence as it is a peaceful restoration of order, which is a conservative way of reading tragedies of the Aristotelian um, understanding of tragedy, that it leads to a, a catharsis and a restoration of the status quo. So he then challenges Macduff by saying, if such a one be fit to govern, speak. I am as I have spoken. And as well as provoking Macbeth, he's also, as I said, addressing the question of are there any limits to human cruelty and avarice. Now Macduff first of all indulges Malcolm. Scotland has foisons to fill up your will. And then as he escalates his rhetoric, he assures him that there are limits and he would never serve a king who behaves as Malcolm claims he would. So it seems to me to be Malcolm's willingness to state a limit that reassures Malcolm as much as an acceptance of his loyalty. So after the trauma of Malcolm's father's murder, he seems to be engaged in a kind of flash forward um, in which he forces himself to face the meaning of unfettered power and its consequences. And then the firm, reassuring voice of Macduff reassures him and grounds him in the present. So he says, what I truly am is thine, 
and my poor countries to command. Now this takes me to the second point, which is about political leaders and isolation. So there's a contrast between Malcolm, who has a mentor, you could say, collaborator, in the form of Macduff, who acts as a counsellor and, where necessary, a break on rash and violent action, and Macbeth, who has no such other, because he and Lady Macbeth collaborate in the murder of Duncan, but neither of them acts as a restraint on the other, and Lady Macbeth disappears altogether from Act 3, Scene 4. Now Macbeth loses even those who initially supported him. In his own words, the thanes fly from me. Isolated leaders, whether we call them tyrants or not, in my opinion, are unlikely to function terribly well. Modern despots, from Saddam Hussein to Assad, at least had trusted family members, thugs as they might be, to rely upon, but Macbeth has none of those. And he himself knows that his inability to maintain a close cohort of trusted advisers is the main source of his downfall. And this speech, uh, um, which I'll just let you read, um, is absolutely about saying self-pitying, possibly, but deeply reflective on the state of what it means to end up on your own with no allies. And also the fact that if anybody who is around you is never going to speak truth to power. It'll be lip service only. So I think what this speech highlights is the sterility of power that can only be maintained by violence rather than through human bonds, whether these uh, happen to be loyal or paid followers, <coughs> fellow conspirators or heirs. Now, Stephen Greenblatt, who's a very eminent um, American Shakespeare scholar, He's recently written a book called Tyrant, and he highlights the fact that while Macbeth has servants and some associates, he's completely, essentially alone. And he writes, Institutional restraints have failed. The internal and external censors that keep most ordinary mortals, let alone rulers of nations, from sending irrational messages in the middle of the night or acting on every crazed impulse are absent. Now, I do not know who he could be possibly be thinking of here. <laughs> and Macbeth himself talks about how he's left with behavior that's entirely impulsive when he says, from this moment, the very firstlings of my heart shall be the firstlings of my hand. I'll go straight from thought to action, nothing in between. Uh, and then the third point is um, that Shakespeare challenges us to think in a much more nuanced way about the top-down nature of leadership, however autocratic, and even in feudal 11th century Scotland, where Macbeth is um, based. So Macbeth orders the death of Banquo and his son Fleance, 
because he fears their rivalry. But Shakespeare doesn't present this as straightforwardly as he could have done. Instead, he does something very interesting. He treats the audience to a relatively long scene in which Macbeth is trying to persuade the two murderers to carry out his orders. And it's evident that this is the second conversation he's had with them and that the men have not been convinced the first time round. He tries to convince them of Banquo's ill intentions towards them and his ill deeds, but it doesn't seem to have much effect. And the thing that does have an effect on them is their sense of utter desperation about their own life circumstances. So um, the second murderer says, I am one, my liege, whom the vile blows and buffets of the world have so incensed that I am reckless what I do to spite the world. And the other one adds, and I another, so weary with disasters, tugged with fortune, that I would set my life on any chance to mend it or be rid on it. So rather than just present these men as instruments of the tyrant, uh, Shakespeare shines a shaft of light onto their own lives, their own perceptions and their own circumstances. And I must say this speech came to mind on June the 24th, 2016, uh, immediately after the Brexit uh, referendum, the idea perhaps that for many people it was just a chance to do anything to get out of a pretty awful, miserable life. Uh, now, to move on to um, Coriolanus, in many ways, um, as James says, these are two plays that present very different ideas about political processes. So in Coriolanus himself, we've almost got the antithesis of Macbeth, because here is somebody who never particularly aspired to political leadership and does his absolute best to ruin his chances of ever attaining it. But precisely because of that, it's a really wonderful vehicle for illuminating those practices that aspirant leaders were expected to engage in. And for me, it's almost Shakespeare's perfect political play. Just a quick word about the context, which I think is relevant. The play starts with um, hunger riots in, um, in Republican Rome. And in England in 1607, when the play was written, there were serious bread riots and a lot of <coughs> debate about how they should be handled. Uh, there were protests against, uh, protests against enclosure and the hoarding of grain, and they evoked, eventually evoked an extremely harsh response by landowners. Uh, many of these took place in the Midlands, where Shakespeare himself owned land, and Shakespeare himself apparently hoarded grain. So, uh, so a lot of interesting dimensions there. Now, whereas Macbeth, of course, was part of a feudal society where individual clan leaders are all powerful and there were very few institutional structures, the political drama of Coriolanus, written about a society over a, a millennia earlier, focuses on conflicts about political representation 
within the relatively stable institutions of Republican Rome, institutions that were created precisely to act as constraints on absolute power. Now to quote, um, quote Stephen Greenblatt again in his book on tyranny, where interestingly Stephen Greenblatt is doing exactly what Shakespeare did. He's commenting on political events from a safe distance of centuries. Somebody asked earlier about how Shakespeare would have written would have portrayed Boris Johnson. Well, you can be absolutely sure that if they were contemporaries, Shakespeare would have placed Boris Johnson at a few centuries safe distance. <laughs> and Stephen Greenblatt is doing exactly the same. Uh, so he describes um, Coriolanus. We are dealing here with an overgrown child's narcissism, insecurity, cruelty, folly, all unchecked by any adult supervision and restraint. Now, while I don't disagree with this, I still prefer to focus on the surrounding context rather than Coriolanus himself, obviously unsuited to political office, but whom nevertheless the Senate wants to promote as a consul. So three aspects to Coriolanus about political processes. One is what it means to co try and co-opt a hard man to carry out your political desires. Uh, the opinions of the ordinary citizens and the silence of those with power. And I'm going to follow this with a, a short clip of a video of a um, Royal Shakespeare Company, a production of Coriolanus. So Coriolanus is corrupted by the senators. As a hard man, he'll do their dirty work for them. The senators are in a dilemma. In order to stave off the popular unrest about the bread riots, they have appointed tribunes to, to represent the people. Unfortunately, the tribunes take their role extremely seriously. So they regret handing over this power and therefore they want Coriolanus, who was always opposed to this move, to act as the enforcer. So he's a renowned soldier. All he has to do is play the game of observing the constitutional niceties until he's safely in post. He's an immensely popular soldier because he had a stunning victory over the Volskis at Coroli. And uh, the senators, in turn, try to set him up as a superhero or a demigod. And uh, Cominius <laughs> describes him um, in these terms almost as if he's uh, a demigod. But what they want of Coriolanus is that he should be iconic in this way, but silent. So despite his reputation, they tend to treat him as a rough, unsophisticated soldier who can be manipulated to their ends. In other words, he's all brawn and therefore ideally should have no words. Uh, they say, consider this, he has been bred in the wars since he could draw a sword and he's ill-schooled in bolted language. So he's an instrument rather than a thinking participant. Now, from Hitler to Idi Amin and many others, there's a history of those with power 
making catastrophic decisions by allowing thugs to get into positions of power on the assumption that they can be co-opted to ward off a greater threat. But in doing so, the threat that they themselves might pose is often overlooked until it's too late. So Coriolanus refuses to comply with the niceties of acquiring political power and the useful weapon that he was in Act 1 by Act 3 has become an unguided missile that nobody quite knows how to control. So second, the dilemmas um, about political representation when the angry and the hungry plebeians are appeased by being given tribunes highlights the idea of interdependency in a very powerful way which I think um, surfaces less in Macbeth. In Coriolanus, I would say probably more than any other of Shakespeare's plays, certainly more than in Julius Caesar, the voices of the ordinary citizens are given salience and they provide an incredibly rich and perceptive commentary on the workings of power and a very sophisticated understanding of the fiscal policy employed by the senators which depends on maintaining gross inequality by hoarding grain and not releasing it to the, um, to the people. So here are just a couple of their views about power. We are accounted poor citizens, the patricians good. What authority surfeits on would relieve us if they would yield us but the superfluity while it were wholesome. We might guess they relieved us humanely, but they think we are too dear. The leanness that afflicts us, the object of our misery, is us an inventory to particularise their abundance. Our sufferance is gained to them. Let us revenge this with our pikes, ere we become rakes. For the gods know I speak this in hunger for bread, not in search of revenge, thirst for revenge. And then later on, they make the same point. So they're naming the workings of power in a way that the senators, of course, prefer to have um, hidden. And Coriolanus, of course, as many right-wing leaders, is much more likely to acknowledge this inequality because he approves of it. Um, so by directly challenging the citizens, he exposes the patricians and reveals the dishonesty of their policy, which is a sort of trickle-down economics, one could argue. The citizens are accorded the power to approve Coriolanus as consul, but they know that this power has strict limits. So there's a ritual before you become consul that you have to display the wounds that you acquired in war. And when he does, when Coriolanus, who's very, very reluctant to do this, is eventually persuaded to do it, the citizens can't approach him as a group where they could have a collective voice, but they have to come by twos and threes. And they know this. He's to make his request by particulars, so that, and they never actually see the wounds which are the symbolic heart of the ritual. So they do give Coriolanus their assent, 
But the tribunes, who are absolutely determined that Coriolanus will not be consul, immediately challenge them, uh, claim that they've been cowed by the weight and status of Coriolanus's lineage. And there's a wonderful quote about the limitations of power, um, which is really about lip surface representation. We have power in ourselves to do it, but it's a power that we have no power to do. For Issy shows us his wounds and tells us his deeds. We are to put our tongues into these wounds and speak for them. So if he tells us his noble deeds, we must also tell him our noble acceptance of them. Now those who've got the most power, in this case the patricians, the senators, are the ones who least wish to have it named or indeed to allow any political discussion whatsoever. And that's one of the remarkable things in Coriolanus' intense political discussions. But the people with power are mainly silent and trying to control the narrative. So Coriolanus's views are pretty repugnant and the tribunes are fairly devious and dishonest. But they all, so they all know what power is about. So at some level, you could say that Coriolanus and the Tribune, enemies as they are, are working in collaboration. He's challenging the senators, Coriolanus, by refusing to obey the niceties of political ritual. And the Tribunes challenge them by taking seriously their duty to the people to represent them and by trying to have Coriolanus banned from public office. Stephen Greenblatt, again, is what, in what might just be a reference to uh, present times, says, Shakespeare must have thought that tyranny cannot be stopped if democratic opposition is so high-minded that it is powerless to counter the political conniving that leads up to a seizure of power. Coriolanus's allies urge him to cloak his actual views in order to be elected, the tribunes urge the people to cloak the role that they are playing. Now, in the clip that I'm going to show you, um, a fairly short clip, um, it's from Act 3, Scene 1, immediately after Coriolanus thinks that he has the people's consent, but he's unaware that the tribunes have persuaded them to change their minds. To my mind, it demonstrates a series of displacement where the senators remain silent or attempt to call tempers but never once enter the fray. While the major showdown is initially between Coriolanus and the tribunes, at a certain point he turns his ire on the senators for what he sees as a disastrous handing over of power to the tribunes. And Shakespeare dramatizes this moment by, at one point, focusing on one single word, and that word is shall, which stands for this momentous shifting of power. Now, I hope I can... I need to get to the... Now, here we are.
Behold. These are the tribunes of the people, the tongues of the common mouth. I do despise them, for they do prank them in authority against all noble sovereigns. Pass no further. Ah, what's that? It will be dangerous to go on. No further. What makes this change? The matter. Have you not passed the noble and the common? Camillius, no. Have I had children's voices? Tribunes give way. He shouted the marketplace. The people are incensed against you. Stop, or all will fall in broil. Are these your herd? Must these have voices that can yield them now and straight disclaim their tongues? What are your offices? You being their mouths, why rule you not their teeth? Have you not set them on? Be calm, be calm. It is a purposed thing and grows by plot to curb the will of the nobility. Suffer and live with such as cannot rule nor ever will be ruled. Call it not a plot. The people cry you mocked them. <laughs> and of late, when corn was given them gratis, you repined. Scandal the suppliants for the people, call them time-pleasers, flatterers, foes to nobleness. Why, this was known before. Not to them all. Have you informed them, Sivans? Oh, I informed them. You are like to do such business. Not unlikely to wait a better yours. Why then should I be consul by yond clouds? Let me deserve so ill as you, and make me a fellow tribune. You show too much of that for which the people stir. If you will pass to where you are bound, you must inquire your way, which you are out of, with a gentler spirit. Or never be so noble as a consul, nor yoke with him for tribute. Let's be calm. The people are abused. Set on. This paltering becomes not Rome, nor hath Coriolanus deserved this so dishonored rub, laid falsely at the plague way of his men. Tell me of corn. This was my speech, and I will speak it again. Not now, not now. Not in this heat, sir. Now, now, as I live, I will. My nobler friends, I crave their pardon. For the mutable, rank-scented many, let them regard me as I do not flatter, and therein behold themselves. I say again, in soothing them, we nourish against our senate the cockle of rebellion, insolence, sedition, which we ourselves have ploughed for, sowed, and scattered, by mingling them with us, the honoured number, who lack not virtue, no, nor power, but that which they have given to beggars. Well, no more. No more words, we beseech you. Oh, no as for my country, I have shed my blood, not fearing outward force. So shall my lungs coin words till their decay against those measles which we disdain should tetanus, yet sought the very way to catch them. You speak of the people as if you were a god, to punish, not a man of their infirmity. Oh, well, we let the people know it. What? What? His color? Sober. Were I as patient as the midnight sleep by Jove to be my mind? It is a mind that shall remain a poison when it is, not poison any further. Shall remain? Hear you this triton of the minute. Mark you his absolute shall. Was from the cannon. Shall! Oh, good, but most unwise patricians. Why, you grave but reckless senators, 
Have you thus given Hydra here to choose an officer that with his peremptory shall, being but the horn and noise of the monsters, wants not spirit to say he'll turn your current in a ditch and make your channel his? If he have power, then fail your ignorance. If none, awake your dangerous lenity. You are plebeians, if they be senators. And they are no less, when both your voices blended, the greatest taste most palates theirs. They choose their magistrate, and such a one as he, who puts his shall, his popular shall, against a graver bench than ever found in Greece. By Jove himself, it makes the consuls base. And my soul aches to know, when two authorities are up, neither supreme, how soon confusion may enter twixt the gap of both and take the one by the other. Well, on to the market. Whoever gave that counsel to give forth the corn of the storehouse gratis, as was used sometime in Greece. Well, well, no more of that. Though there the people have more absolute power, I say they nourished disobedience and fed the ruin of the state. Why shall the people give one that speaks thus their voice? I'll give my reasons more worthier than their voices. They know the corn was not our recompense, resting well assured they ne'er did service for it. Being pressed to the war, even when the navel of the state was touched, they would not thread the gate. This kind of service did not deserve corn gratis. Being either war, their mutinies and revolts wherein they showed most valor spoke not for them. Well, what then? How shall this bosom multiply, digest the senate's courtesy? Let deeds express what's like to be their words. We did request it. We are the greater pole. And in true fear, they gave us our demand. Thus we debase the nature of our seat and make the rabble call our cares fears, which will in time break ope the locks of the Senate and bring in the crows to pick the eagles. Come, enough. Enough with overmeasure. No, take more. What may be sworn by both divine and human seal, what I end with all. This double worship, where one part does disdain with cause, the other insult without all reason, where gentry, title, wisdom, cannot conclude by the yea and no of general ignorance. It must omit real necessities and give way the while to unstable slightness. Purpose so barred, it follows nothing is done to purpose. Therefore, beseech you, you that will be less fearful than discreet, but love the fundamental part of state more than you doubt the change on't, that prefer a noble life before a long, that wish to jump a body with a dangerous physic that's sure of death without it, at once pluck out the multitudinous tongue, let them not lick the sweet which is their poison. Your dishonor mangles true judgment and bereaves the state of that integrity which should become, not having the power to do the good it would for the ill which doth control it. The enough has spoken like a traitor. And shall answer as traitors do. Thou wretch, despite overwhelm thee. What should the people do with these bold tribunes, on whom, depending, their obedience fails to the greater bench? In a rebellion, when what's not meet by what must be was law, then were they chosen. In a better hour, let what is meet be said it must be meet, and throw their power either dust. Manifest treason. This a consul? No. Edards, help! Go call the people in whose name myself attach thee as a traitor. <laughs> so it doesn't get, it uh, goes downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I always find um, fascinating about this scene 
is the way that Coriolanus is voicing what is obviously the position of the senators, but which they cannot voice for themselves. So once he finds his voice, which he's not meant to find, he's meant just to do the bidding until he's in power, he turns to them, so he's saying, come on, you agree with me, what is it, guys? Um, and uh, I think that is a really interesting uh, statement about the process of power and how it works. So just to conclude, um, so my argument really in each of these plays is that focusing too much on the personality and the strengths and the failings of the individual leader can obscure all those intricacies of how power is seen to work and all the multiple perspectives and ambiguities and human detail that Shakespeare brings to it. So we have time, I think, for some <coughs> questions and debate, and I'd be very interested to um, engage in that. <laughs>